Hello, this is Fantastic Noise. In this episode, we are finding out about making magazine programmes on radio, speaking with producer Patrick Thomas from BBC Radio 2's Jeremy Vine programme. I'm Terry Lee, Senior Tutor in Radio and Audio at the University of Bedfordshire. Thanks for your time, and thanks for your ears. As a radio lecturer, there are many things we teach students each year that are crucial for them to understand in order for them to pass assessments. Both our second and final year undergraduates are at some point assessed on their attempts at producing sequence or magazine-style programming. But what is magazine programming? In the book Radio Production by Robert McLeish, a magazine is described as being structured with the emphasis on content aimed at a specific audience. But as great as this book is, I still usually get asked for examples by my students for them to listen to. One I often refer to is Women's Hour on BBC Radio 4, but the one I tend to signpost them towards, because it also includes music, is Jeremy Vine on Radio 2. During the summer break, I was lucky enough to chat with one of the programme's producers. So I'm Patrick Thomas. I've been working with the show in some capacity uh, and working with Radio 2 in some capacity for about three years. So I think I know it quite well. When we spoke, Patrick was delighted that he'd just been offered a new contract at the station after a recent interview process with the Radio 2 bosses. It's very exciting and I'm glad it's... I, I don't know how similar this will be to my job interview I had on Monday. <laughs> Go on about... Jeremy Vance was brilliant for these reasons. <laughs> after we hear my conversation with Patrick, I will recommend something else to listen to and we will have the radio word of the week. But let's get to it. I started by asking Patrick to describe the basic structure of the Jeremy Vine programme. The show's been going on for about nearly 20 years. Not 20 years, but nearly 20 years. And my boss, Phil Jones, has been running the show since it started. And by the time I joined, it was in a very good place. And I haven't in any way made it any better. But um, he and the team have created a structure that actually, if you listened every day, you would realise it is exactly the same-ish in terms of its skeleton what you might call a clock. So how the timings work and how the two hours is structured. It's two hours, it's 12 till two every weekday on Radio 2. We have four stories. It would be very, very, very special for us to do something that lasted over two slots. So we have four half hour slots during the show. And we in the production team refer to them as the 12 or the lead, the 12.30, the one o'clock and the 1.30. In reality, none of them start at that time. The show starts at 12. We have, I'm not going to do this whole two hours, but I'll do the first one. Uh, show starts at 12. We have a three-minute news bulletin. Uh, that go, then Jeremy does a one-minute, what he calls his menu, where he summarizes the show in a minute. So today it ended with something like, as the Pentagon says they've seen things in the sky, have you seen a UFO? And if the USA has accepted UFOs exist, do you say, of course they do, I've seen one. Love your thoughts. Listen live on the So he tries to sort of throw in a question at the end. Then he plays a record, and then we do the first item, which is the thing that us producers are most focused on, which is a script which says our angle on the story, and then one, two, three, or very occasionally four guests that we've booked that will either debate each other or discuss with one another, or it might be a correspondent and then a debate, or three guests in succession. So that bit is a bit fluid. Then you'll play a record and then we'll go to some sort of comment from the or interaction from the audience. That might be texts or emails and then probably a couple of phone calls. Then he'll play some more music, do some more comment. And then we move on to the 1230 and repeat, repeat, repeat. Uh, the only slight difference is that the so it's going very boring and technical. There's a five minute bulletin at one o'clock and we have a travel bulletin at 1.30. The other thing that we also do is at 11.30, half an hour before the show starts, Jeremy goes on uh, Ken Bruce's show and tells him what's happening. And that's not in any way for Ken Bruce's benefit. In fact, I'm sure Ken's show would sound better without it. But it's so that we can get the ball rolling on listeners going, oh, there's a thing about UFOs. Um, mm. I saw a UFO once when I was in Oxfordshire. Let an email in. And that gives just us a little bit of a head start during the show for us to work out who we're going to get on the air. 
So that's the the skeleton structure of the show. Should I just quickly go through how we pick those four stories for the day? Yeah, yeah, I'd be I'd be really interested to to see how you did that. We have four stories a day. Normally, one of them is ready to go when we arrive at work at seven thirty in the morning, and that one will be less newsworthy. Although during the pandemic, it has been slightly more newsworthy. It will be an item that's maybe a longer interview with someone interesting or a discussion point that isn't in the news, but is a discussion worth having or perhaps something that's something that might need a little bit more setting up. So it might be a story that's in the news today. Oh, we should definitely interview that guy. So let's find a time that he's free and we can book him for Thursday, the 5th of August or whenever it is. And that's normally our one o'clock story is set up in advance. Apart from that, we have a meeting every morning at 8.10. So we all get in at 7.30 or at the moment, most of us are at home on Zoom, although some of us are in the office. And we have this meeting and we basically go around the circle for 40 minutes, taking it in turns to pitch ideas for the show. And that will be based on things in today's news. Very occasionally it might be, oh, I was thinking last night about how no one ever talks about this. So it doesn't have to be newsworthy, but it mainly, it will. the meeting will start with the biggest story of the day and people will go around and each person probably pitches three or four ideas. And then the editor, who is normally a man called Phil, who's my boss, but sometimes it's other people who uh, are there, uh, will pick. And it's it's their decision. And they try and pick four stories that are a different kind of mix, a nice variety, but the biggest stories of the day and the things that will generate the most, often things that will generate the most interaction. But sometimes he would tell me off if he heard me say that because he, he's, sometimes he says, it's a great story and it doesn't need any interaction because it just needs a great interview. So that's that's how we decide. And then we have the meeting ends just before nine o'clock. And then we have from nine until about 10.40 to we'll all be delegated who's going to work on which story. And then you just got to write a script, book one, two, three or four guests, find some clips, pull it all together, put it in a Word document, print it off and we'll give it to Jeremy Vine just before 11 o'clock. So okay. it's, the morning is exciting. Uh, <laughs> and then we have a little bit of downtime and then we all pile in and again we delegate in the old you know the before times we would all be answering the phones to listeners going oh i want to talk to jeremy about this but now we sort of split up who's going to look at emails and texts and then call people back and stuff so mm. that happens during the show but it's all pretty i was going to say high octane it's not high octane a roller coaster is high octane but it's it's pretty you know there's a lot there's a lot going on before the show ends at two yeah, i hope that I mean, answers your question <laughs> sorry it's no, very it, rambly it does. So that, that you say the the meeting, that production meeting, if you like, ends just before nine. What time did you say it would start? Like around just after eight or something? Yeah, so it starts, I think the official reason, it starts at 8.10 because that's when the Radio 4 Today programme bulletin ends. Mm. So it means that the editor, and I guess all of us, can listen to the bulletin in case it's like, and news just in. You know, so it, it, it and that's why it starts at eight ten, and then yep. it tends to go on. It depends on the day, but it tends to go on until just before nine. Okay, there's lots to dig into there. I mean, first question I have, I guess, I guess, was well, more of an observation about the previewing the program when Jeremy goes on Ken Bruce's thing. I, I speak to so many podcasters, of course, that sometimes you forget how the basic thing about radio and the beauty of radio is that you know listeners do go from one program to the next to the next and and so you as Jeremy Vine show producers although your program sounds different to, to Ken Bruce's obviously there will be lots of crossover in in your audience you'd hope that they would choose to to listen to Jeremy Vine uh, afterwards so do, do you have to think about the, the content that you choose, are you thinking about who is going to be listening to Radio 2 and, and to Ken Bruce uh, when you're choosing that those items? That's a very good question. I think there's two contradicting answers that I'm going to give both. Sure. Um, the first one is, one of the reasons the Jeremy Vine show is so important, you could say, is that it's the only real talk, speech, current affairs radio that the Radio 2 audience get. Imagine that most people who do listen to the radio, of which there are millions, are quite loyal in their listening habits. They listen to one station and they stick with it. I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure a lot of people might listen to, say, Chris Evans on Virgin and then move back to Radio 2, or, or they might listen to Radio 4 for the Stay programme and then move to 5 Live, whatever. doesn't matter. But a lot of people are 
loyal and what they listen to and we'll be listening to radio 2 all day and the only news and current affairs and chat show basically they're going to get is jeremy vine and we often have to think oh we heard this amazing thing on radio 4 quite a lot of the team listens to the world tonight on radio 4 and this amazing thing on the world tonight how can we communicate that to the radio 2 audience that aren't necessarily the radio 4 audience and that's not to patronize it that's just that they aren't going to be you know, the world tonight can probably assume that those people have also been listening to the world at one or PM and might have a greater context of where the story's at by then. So there's that. But I would also say in terms of interaction, listener interaction, the show has, or at least it had the last time Rajar's existed, just under 7 million people mm. listening. And we probably get somewhere around a thousand people getting in touch every day. So where are the other six point whatever million? They're just listening. So I don't think we we tailor our content to the Radio 2 audience. We just know that our audience are there. And if they feel like it, they will interact, but they might not. And that's fine. Yeah. I, I think it's just worth um, throwing in that, of course, Rajar, you, you refer to them not existing. That is due to the, the COVID-19 pandemic uh, effectively putting a, a stop to how these listener figure you know results that were done quarterly uh, how that information was gathered and as a result <laughs> it's been in limbo uh, for, yes. for some time now and I imagine uh, I, I don't know what the current situation is or how they're going to plan to restart that but uh, at the moment the, the, it's not happened. As an absolute nerd when it comes to radio when yep. it does come back I, I'm very excited because I think it will be everything will be turned on its head and people will, it will all be completely different and that's quite exciting. Yes. Um, but Beautiful. that's a side note I was just going to say one of my favourite things that um, Paddy O'Connell who presents Broadcasting House on Radio 4 very occasionally very very occasionally covers for Jeremy and I love that he often says at the top of the show uh, you can call this number you can text this number you can email this number or don't do any of those things and just shout at your radio <laughs> uh, and I love that because it, it summarises those those millions of people who are just like oh I've got either got this on in the background or I'm going to listen and see what the Jeremy Vine team have come up with today, but no part of me feels the need to to get in touch. And actually, uh, you know, I've, I love radio and I've listened to radio all my life. I could probably count on one hand the amount of times I've texted into a radio station. So it's not just about those listeners that get in touch, but we, obviously we do care about them because they make up a huge part of the show. <laughs> sure. Because it is sort of a call-in show, sort of. Sure. There's some good radio made from from those callers. But to, to get back to, okay, the, the process, you've got this, your, your production meeting that ends around nine, say, and then you have pretty much, by the sounds of things, your program done, prepared by 11. So Jeremy has a time, you know, that time to digest what he's doing. Uh, obviously, yeah. the, the live call, the live elements you can't have done by then. But does that mean that, for example, pre-recorded items, um, because occasionally you hear those in, in the Jeremy Vine program. In fact, um, on this very podcast series, we, we spoke to, Tim Johns a couple of years ago in a previous episode talking about how he makes uh, feature items for, for the Jeremy Vine show. So do they have to be done in, in that short window? Is that, is that how it works? So in terms of pre-recorded stuff involving Jeremy, unless we're on an OB, an outside broadcast, which where actually everything's completely different. So I'm not going to talk about that. Sure. Unless we're there, I've been on the show for three years and I can think of two occasions where we've done a pre-record with Jeremy uh, one involved Hillary Clinton and one involved Tony Blair. And apart from that, the general rule is we don't do pre-records when it comes to interviews, just because, uh, as you might know, Jeremy does a TV show on Channel 5. So our time with him is actually quite limited. Mm. So it would have to be, and I remember getting the the call at, it was just before 11 and it was, do you want Tony Blair? And if so, you can have him now. Oh. And that that was a case of actually we probably do want Tony Blair, so let's run upstairs. And I just dialed this number that I'd been sent, and then this voice went hello. I was like, oh, it's Tony Blair. <laughs> um, anyway, but That's a good impression. Um, I only told the story so I could do the impression. Um, <laughs> but Tim's packages, which are brilliant, and I guess he can tell you about them in the previous episode, which is still available wherever you get your podcasts. He would make uh, 99% of the packages he makes, he makes on the morning. So at nine, the editor will say, um, Tim, I'd love you to make a package about uh, the most recent one he made was about dishwashers. 
Mm. And he will he will sort of put his headphones on and you can see he's sort of in the zone. And he actually normally finishes them just before 12 because he doesn't need to, you know, Jeremy can have in his script. Our reporter, Tim Johns, has been doing this. He doesn't need to listen to it before the show. So Tim has slightly longer, but I'm still saying that it's amazing that he can do that because he's turning it around from a seed of an idea to a package in just under three hours. Uh, I have occasionally done little pre-recorded bits. Uh, The most recent one I did was with a man who lives near a ship that's covered in bombs from World War II and could explode at any moment. And I, with that, I found the story and I thought that's a great story. Um, I said to my editor, can I go and meet the man? And that was one of the stories that we set up because we always have one set up story, like I said. So I went away, I recorded with him. I edited it down to three minutes. I then found a bomb disposal expert who could talk about it. And that, what you would hear as a pre-recorded piece, maybe if you were listening at home and the, the cue or the script said, we sent our reporter, Patrick Thomas, to go and find out more. That is true that we that we did, although I sent myself, but we sent me a month before you heard it on air. So so things like that are often set up in advance. But it, but if you ever hear Jeremy throw to anything that's pre-recorded, it's very unlikely to be with him. And if it is, he's actually very keen to always say. I remember when we did the Hillary Clinton interview, and that was literally because she came to the BBC. For, she must have been exhausted because she every interview you heard with her over that week was all done in one afternoon. Everyone sort of had their go. And Jeremy was very keen to say, earlier this week, I sat down with Hillary Clinton and let's press play on me rather than doing kind of Scott Mills on Radio 1. I'm going to shatter lots of radio people's dreams now when they realise <laughs> that he will, he will be half... And I've watched him do it and it's absolutely incredible the way he does it, but he'll be halfway through a sentence and he'll press play on a pre-record. Yeah. And, um, but th- we would never do anything like that on the Vine show. No, that's really interesting. So so that, that answers my my query really it sounds like the vast majority of the content other than the odd little package every now and then uh, is is live um on on the jeremy vine program which is an interesting and, and i guess a impressive production feat yeah it is it is and it isn't i mean one of the reasons that i love radio as a concept is that everything you know it takes a minute arguably it takes a minute to make a minute of radio and it takes an hour to make a minute of tv or something like that but by the time we go at 12, the adrenaline is amazing at 12, but a lot of the pieces are already in place, but you do think, and that's why I always wanted to work on a show like Jeremy Vine is that I have no idea what's going to happen. You know, I, I used the UFOs example earlier, but Jeremy saying at 12.04, and have you ever seen a UFO? You know, at, at 1.45, if we go back to that original time slot, 1.45, there's going to be two callers on the air claiming they've seen UFOs and you have no idea what they're going to say. And there's something quite exciting about that. Whereas if it was pre-recorded and you think, oh, I can't wait till till 1.45 when we play out that caller, not quite the same. No, that, that's really interesting. Patrick, th- let's talk about your role in, in producing the programme. And, you know, what would an average day look like for you? And, and how do you interact as well with, with others on the team making the programme? Because it sounds like, you know, there is a, there is a team of people making the programme every day and therefore in your role you'll be working with the team but you'll have your own tasks to do so so tell me a little bit about your role first so i'm an assistant producer uh, and we have on the show a ish we every day we'll have an editor uh who is obviously in charge and then a couple of producers and a couple of assistant producers the day-to-day tasks actually the producers and the assistant producers tend to do the same um the same job or we'll be working together but in my role, so I'll be given a story at nine. So I come in and pitch ideas like everyone else and then uh, be given a story. And then, yeah, it will be a case of, depending how well-staffed we are that day, either writing a story, booking a story, finding audio for the story, or all of the above. So that's how my role works in the run-up to the show, in the sort of around times so that might be between like 11 and 12 you're working from home or in the afternoon after the show's finished we'll all be working on our own either items for the future or certain things like everyone has a sort of thing that they do so someone pays all the guests in the afternoon i, I used to do that in fact I, I still often do do that uh i've just taken on the what makes us human podcast which is 
an item that we often do once or twice a month in our one o'clock slot. It's a longer form interview with someone very impressive or interesting or thoughtful, and they have to answer the age-old question, what makes us human? And it's basically like Desert Island Discs without mm. the songs. And that's actually a case of sort of longer-term bids for guests, dealing with agents, getting them to send over their stuff for the interview because they have to do an essay as part of the interview, uh, getting them to pick their song, and sort of stuff that takes more time and more prep. So, so I do that. Someone else does the, med- the preparations for Medical Monday with our resident doctor. Someone else does uh, the stuff with our relationships expert. So things like that will be set up in the afternoon. And that's, I mean, it's, it's sorry to not have a more specific example of what I do, but actually all the assistant producers and producers on the show have actually a very similar role in how they set stuff up and, and do stuff in their day to day. Even that gives us a, an idea about, you know, the, the various tasks you have to to, to complete as part of your role and how there are lots of different things going on. And, and also you're talking about, you know, planning ahead for future programming. So it's not just, it's not just by 9am you're setting up content for the program. That, that isn't how it necessarily goes every day. Sometimes there'll be things planned long in advance, like things in the diary and events that you're planning content around, I, I presume. Yeah, we tend to avoid, unless it's like a massive like when it was 50 years since the moon landing, I was quite keen on, please, can we do something about that? And can I set it up in advance? Well, we tend to avoid anniversaries and big days because you can kind of do that on the day. And it might be that it actually, by the time you get there, it's not the biggest thing around. But we do tend to have the next five weeks-ish, one thing set up for each show for the next five weeks. So I know that we have a sort of whiteboard in our office and it's got a five by five grid and I can picture it now and it's pretty full. So um, yeah, that, that we do, we do have that, but, but my, my boss, the editor is very keen. And I think it does keep the show fresh that we keep the other three slots free. Just, just to focus a little bit more on, on the different roles involved and, and, you know, the editor who's in charge of, of the program, I guess we have students that I work with, who will understandably, you know, they'll have, they'll make their programs and the presenter uh, is the person planning all their content. But, but presumably the editor is the top of the tree and, and Jeremy, well, obviously there'll, there'll be a, a, some sort of collab occasionally and working together, but presumably Jeremy will follow the instruction of the editor because the, buck stops with the editor that is a very good question it's the jeremy vine show Mm. and obviously jeremy's the one speaking the words and pressing the buttons so if he didn't want to do something he wouldn't do it but the editor is the one that decides what we do and how we do it and jeremy is great at going along with it and doing whatever so yeah I, i don't i don't think either of them is anyone is either of their boss uh and I guess a good way to answer that question is, is a lot of my friends say, if they introduce me to someone in the pub, they say, oh, he works for Jeremy Vine. And I say, I don't work for Jeremy Vine. I work with Jeremy Vine. Not because I'm trying to big up my ego, but actually Jeremy's not the boss because he's he's just turning up and, and wants to do the show and wants to do the best show he can. And actually in terms of being managed, the, the editor manages how best the team can deliver the show. And it is definitely a team effort uh, with Jeremy and the editor and the producers and the assistant producers. And I should say, during the show, we always have a studio manager as well that Jeremy presses all his own buttons and microphone, but the studio manager will adjust the inputs for guests uh, and callers and stuff. And I should say, a big part of my role during the show is there'll always be one of us, and today it was me, who is sat with the editor and receiving all the comment that's coming from the team that are processing it working out who we're going to get on the air and physically dialing in their numbers, getting them on air and getting the guests. Ever since COVID, we've had most of our guests on FaceTime and it is literally, you wouldn't believe it, it's li- we've got two iPhones, you type in their number on FaceTime, press dial and plug them into a thing and they're on radio too. So, <laughs> uh, and, then, and then obviously liaising with the SM studio manager and saying, John Smith's on iPhone one or whatever we call it. And then they will check that they're sounding good and, you know, get them to stand by a window and fade them up and down and stuff. So that's, um, we, we basically, the master question is we definitely work as a team, but the editor and the other people who sort of assistant editors, I guess you call them, they 
are in charge of, of how the show sounds and how it and how it plays out over the two hours every day. Okay, I mean, not not that it, it's particularly relevant to magazine programs generally, but do you use FaceTime because you're trying to get some video potentially for for things like social media? Is that the reason behind it, or to to marry up a a facial reaction so if Jeremy's talking to someone he can see their face or is there another reason for FaceTime? The reason for FaceTime is and this is going nice and technical we we are big thing pre-coronavirus get as many guests as you can in the studio or in a BBC studio um, and that was always a big part of our jobs in the morning was great I've booked this guy he lives near Dunstable we want the Dunstable studio, but Radio 4 booked the Dunstable studio until 7 past 12. So I need to go and call that producer from Radio 4 and say, do you actually need it? Because I want to get this guy on at 12.04. So we were always keen to get people in and, and in quality in either in a studio or, or preferably our studio, because there's nothing more fun than, you know, a, another huge part of our job was going to meet people saying, welcome to Radio 2. Um, let's talk through how this interview is going to work. Jeremy, meet Steve. Steve, mm. you know, keeps bees and he's bought a thousand bees with him and we're going to let them loose. Great. <laughs> we can't do that anymore. And I'd actually, obviously, we would never have done that with the bees. So when COVID hit, not allowed any guests, we tried to work out the best way of speaking to people. And it's just been a case of trial and error, really, that we've kind of got our chart run down and FaceTime audio is the best. So we just go FaceTime audio. If you can't do that, they do WhatsApp audio. If you can't do that, they do Skype. If you can't do that, they do Zoom. If you can't do that, then we do them on the phone. And actually, often the phone is fine. With the video answer to your question, as a show, we're not that fussed about um, getting social media content. It's just, for long and boring reasons, not something that we do that much. But Radio 2 have a snazzy new system where if you've got a guest on Zoom, basically they can see Jeremy and Jeremy can see them. And that does, we haven't done it that much. And other shows, I know The Breakfast Show do it a lot more because it enables them to have a bit more of a conversation. They'll be having a great conversation anyway, it's Zoe Ball, but it's, it enables them to be like, oh, you're actually there. Let's actually have, you know, let's engage with one another rather than doing something over the phone. So, they, and they, they do use that for social media and stuff. So, so there is a perk to doing it. And also, you know, we do what makes us human. And the rule was we always had to be in the room. And it's like, well, now we've got the added challenge that they can't be in the room. So we could book someone who's in maybe, you know, another country. I'd, there's a guy called Wim Hof or Wim Hof, who people are obsessed with, who does cold showers. That's his thing. But we would never have dreamed of having him on the show. But he lives in Iceland. But now it's like, oh, we'll just get FaceTime in Iceland. That's fine. It's all on the internet. So it's easy. So that's why that's we use FaceTime. Back to some of the content that, you know, when you, you're putting together a program like Jeremy Vine, Magazine programs. What do you think are the key ingredients to a a good listen for an overall program? I think that people would have different answers to this. Personally, my answer would be it's got to be relevant. And actually, I think the top story has to be the biggest. It doesn't have to be the biggest story today, but it has to be one of the biggest stories of the day. Uh, I think you want a variety in there and the tone a variety of tone and I think we, we've all on the show we're quite good at seeing unexpected parallels mm -hmm. so you might have two what look like very different items but actually the more you think about it even just for five minutes you think actually they're both about a family member being irresponsible or you know if, if the item is is it is it irresponsible to get drunk when you're looking after your children and have you ever had an accident in a swimming pool? The more you think about it, and I'm thinking of those at the top of my head, but actually do they both just become stories about parents not being responsible? And if they do, then that's not variety and that's going to slow the pace of the show down. So that's not a good ingredient. So I would say you want to have a huge story at the top, a more featurey, longer form interview, perhaps at one o'clock, and then two things that are quite pacey at 12.30 and 1.30. That, that's if I was editing the show, which I might do in about 30 years time, that's what I would, how I would do it. And, and I also, I'm a big fan and some people are less fans, but I'm a big fan of doing what you might call silly stories at 1.30. I would never call them silly stories, but I think there's always room to have fun. And one of the things that Jeremy Vine does very well is treating a arguably silly story with as much gravitas as the biggest political story of the day because actually to one person to the person who 
runs the cricket club in Northamptonshire that's been overrun by chihuahuas. I'm, I'm again making this up as I go along. But to that person, it is a very important story. And Jeremy's not taking the mickey out of them. He's just treating that story as a good story. One of my favourite items that I did, that I have done this year, was the one of the ravens at the Tower of London went missing. And legend states that if there are fewer than six ravens at the Tower of London, then the Kingdom of Britain will fall. Now, obviously, that is just something you might hear in a GCSE history lesson about Charles II. But we were able to do it in quite a fun way. And I booked someone who was at the Tower of London, someone who was a raven expert. And then I sort of Tim Johns styly made a one minute package about the history of the ravens at the Tower of London. Mm. And we were able to do that. And because, because the show is so pacey, because there's so much variety, it would be weird if you were going, and today it's a raven special on the Jeremy Vine show. We're going to talk to you about ravens two hours. That's weird. But yeah. because you go massive news story at 12 o'clock and now just quickly gear change, Raven's gone missing at the Tower of London. Let's talk to this person. Let's get to the, this person. Let's talk to this person. Let's talk to a listener. Let's talk to a listener. Are we going to play some music? And we're off and it's, let's go to the next story. Let's go to the next story. So I think that's the pace. And I just mentioned music and I realise we haven't talked about music, but it is Radio 2. We do play 11 or 12 songs over the two hours. And actually that also adds to the momentum and it adds to the sense that it is Radio 2. And if you're listening in an office, which is where I imagine, I, I very briefly, when I was straight out of uni, worked in an office, and they had the radio on, and they had Radio 2 on, and you're not necessarily engaging with the person who's called Jeremy Vine to tell him about their scuba diving accident, but you are going, oh, yeah, it's that song they keep playing on Radio 2. So it, it caters for that as well. You've answered a lot of my uh, follow-up questions before I even got there, which is fantastic. But there was one thing I was going to ask, um, though, and that's because you mentioned experts, for example, about ravens. And, and it made me think, how important to your items is having an expert opinion? And, and how do you do that with, with items in, in different ways? It really depends on the item. And it really depends what it's about. And if it's uh and actually there's experts and there's correspondence and i think sometimes you really need a correspondent just to paint a picture mm. and sometimes you need an expert if it's uh, about something medical or something where you need someone who's really straight maybe on i mean i'm all i can think about is coronavirus but mm. things about vaccines and stuff it's quite good to have an expert there because we can brief jeremy as much as we like and jeremy's incredibly well read and always on top of the story, but he's not an epidemiologist. So no. yeah, sometimes it's good to have so someone there who can set, who, you know, who's read every boring paper that they need to read, you know, or we've done, obviously we've done a lot in the last few months about the constantly changing travel rules for uh, restrictions for going abroad. What's great is if you can do a Q and a with someone like Simon Calder, who, is one of the best travel journalists in the country and will have absorbed all that information, which means that Beryl from Basildon or whoever's called in and wants to go to Tenerife with her not family who doesn't live in the same household as her to go and see their three kids who haven't been vaccinated or whatever, Simon can go, great, I can give you all the information in a sort of not public service way, but in a kind of more interesting way than Jeremy might say, oh yeah, that is a dilemma. Let's see if we get that out together and hopefully we get it right. So I think experts are important in that sense. But actually, if it's an item about, um, we, we meet a man who says caravans should be banned and that, that might just be a, a journalist who hates caravans. It's much more interesting to hear them talk to someone who loves caravans than the chief executive of the Caravan Association. So mm. you don't always need an expert. You, you just need the right voices for the right item. Oh, that's good. Well, I'll, I'll use that again. What I often say to, to my students is that you know, when, when I talk about getting an expert, uh, I don't necessarily mean, you know, professor, expert, muck expert about talking about something in, in like a well-read, knowledgeable way. But I mean, someone who is sort of has a qualification of sorts to talk about the thing that you want to talk about. Yeah. So if you want, if you want someone to talk about how they enjoy going on caravan holidays, 
then, then you need to speak to someone who's enthusiastic about caravan holidays. That's their their expertise, if you like, is their enjoyment, you know, of being that sort of holiday maker. Um, whereas, yeah, if, if as you say, if Jeremy starts talking about um, the vaccine on on your program, listeners are going to start thinking, well, that's weird because why? What makes him, you know, the person to to give me details about why the vaccine's doing X, Y, or Z? Um, whereas obviously if you've got uh, an epidemiologist or a science expert of some kind coming on, then then that would make more sense as a list from a listener point of view. Patrick, presumably um, at the end of each program, your team has a, a good idea on if they think the program you know went well or or if there are things that didn't go so well. So you know briefly, how would you define what makes? it's a successful program or, or which things happen which you think make the program less good or less successful? Well, the first thing I'd say is we don't have, which a lot of shows do have, we don't have a meeting at the end of the show to discuss how it went, um, which is something I'm very glad of. And I know that he might have spoken to you about it, but but Tim Johns and my boss, Phil Jones, they are both quite passionate about how those meetings are a waste of time, but I'm not the one to talk about that. But so we don't necessarily sit down and say, was it a good show? Was it not? But actually, there are definitely days when at two we go, that was a great show. And I guess it's hard to quantify and there are different reasons for it. I think it's a case of were there items or pieces or articles or whatever delivered in a creative way that you hadn't heard elsewhere that made you quite excited as a producer? That would be one way of counting success. The other thing I would say is if someone comes up with something quirky, on my list of ideas for lockdown for quite a few months, I always have, a, I think quite a few of us always have a couple of backup ideas in case there's no news. And I kept thinking everyone's doing jigsaws in lockdown. And I mentioned it a couple of times. And then one day there was very little news. So we did, have you fought, have you fallen in love with jigsaws in lockdown? And it got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails. And that's an example of, we don't always need lots of listener interaction, but if it's an item that you weren't sure about, that then gets lots of interaction. You think, oh, okay, we were onto something there. So I think that's what you would, you define that as a success or something that was done creatively or an item, you know, we'd never do like a charity thing as in, you know, this is why you should donate to this charity because that's not what the BBC does. But we did it. One of the best items of the year was with this young woman who was friends with, I think, a victim of sexual violence and she was also a plasterer and she was plastering women who'd been victims of sexual violence's houses for free because they couldn't afford it. If, if they'd had like an abusive partner who'd wrecked the house, basically. So she was doing that. And one of my colleagues just discovered it in a local paper and we got her on and she'd never done a broadcast interview before. And she did this amazing interview with Jeremy where, you know, made people cry and everything and, Sorry, so throw away. You know, it it got an amazing reaction from the audience, and that we felt like that was a real success because it was something you hadn't heard elsewhere. We weren't just repeating what they'd done on the Today program or on, you know, Nagam and Chetty hadn't done it on Five Live the day before. So that felt like a real success. And mm. and if you have three or four of those items in a show, I'd like to think that the team gets to the end of the show and we go, that was a good show today. Yeah. And we very rarely go, that was a bad show today. It, it might be that sometimes you don't say that was a great show, but we're normally quite happy with it, I think. Loads of listeners of this podcast would probably love to be doing your job on a Radio 2 production team. So I, I wondered if you'd briefly share with us you know, your journey, if you like, how you ended up working for one of the biggest radio stations in Europe. What, what sort of things did you do beforehand? Yes. And I was definitely in that position of, of wanting, I was talking to someone today about how one of my colleagues, how I'd seen in the street, this is going to sound really creepy. I'd seen in the street uh, near where I live, someone who used to be a producer on radio one, who, when I was in a teenager, I'd gone, I really want to be, do his job. And then I'd seen him on the street yesterday. And I thought that's really surreal that um, <laughs> a sort of weirdly starstruck about, um, someone who isn't famous and I've never met. But anyway, um, so I, I get it. And I the idea that someone want my job, I find quite funny, but also it's my dream job. So I've always wanted it. Why would someone else not want it? 
I always wanted to work in, I always wanted to be a journalist when I was 13 or 14, narrowed that down to actually, I don't want to be a journalist. I want to be a radio. I want to work in radio production. By the time I was about 15 or 16, I'd had that thought. And, but I, I did, didn't act on it really. I, I went and visited the local hospital radio just to see what it was about. And then I went to uni, I went to the University of Bristol and studied history mm-hmm. because history was my best subject at school. And I did find it quite interesting. But when I went to the Freshers' Fair, I made a beeline for the student radio and I said, tell me about student radio. I want to do it. I want to, it's literally what I want to do. So I, I did student radio and I can't speak more highly of student radio. And my only regret is that within Bristol, I very quickly made myself a key part of the team. And by my third year, I was in charge, which was great. Mm-hmm. But I would say to any students to really embrace things like the Student Radio Association, and which I did by my third year. But actually, it's in terms of networking. And my, one of my big top tips when people ask me is network with the people at your level. Don't network with don't email the head of Radio 1 and think that they're going to give you a job. What you should do is work out who's just got the job at Radio 1 and become friends with them. Um, and the SRA, Student Radio Association, is brilliant for that. I did a little bit of that, but not much. Anyway, I did student radio and I had a show. Uh, I had various different shows throughout my time at uni and I got involved with every aspect of it. And as I say, I ran it and that was brilliant. And I met a couple of people through doing that. And again, this comes, I wouldn't say, you know, it's bad policy in life, just say yes to everything, but also it's it's something to have in the back of your mind. Maybe I should say yes. I got an email. The joy of being in charge of student radio is that people know your email address because it's the same as the previous station manager. Uh, I got an email from Jason Manford's producer on Absolute Radio, and he said, we're recording Jason's show from Bristol. Uh, we're going to be in Bristol. Could we use your studios? And I said, of course you can. Uh, in return, can I please have some work experience? Because if you don't ask, you don't get. And he yep. said, uh, yes, you can. So when I graduated, we found a time for me to go there. And I only went for a week, but they were very kind to me. And they showed me lots of different bits of Absolute Radio. And uh, I met some presenters and met different teams and met people working on documentaries and things. And I also got an email from... Uh, when I was at Bristol, a man called Tim Johns, who we've already mentioned, who mm. said, we're doing the Jeremy Vine show live from Bristol. Do you want to bring some students so we've got a bit of atmosphere? And I said, of course I do. And then I posted on our sort of Facebook page, wants to come and meet Jeremy Vine in a random community centre. And three people said yes. And I thought <laughs> those are the three people that are going to go far. So we went and yeah. I was on, there's a clip of me on BBC Points West talking to Jeremy. And that's another contact where I, I knew Tim Johns then because of that day and I that seed had kind of been planted. The third person, and this is another good example of how you can use student radio to your advantage, uh, was a producer at Radio 1 who used to be at Bristol and we invited him to come and give a talk to our student radio about how he got his job and then he and I went to the pub as a sort of thanks for coming and we got chatting and he seemed to think I had some potential so when I graduated I met up with him again and he put me in touch with some people at Radio 2 where they did and hopefully will do when things return to normal have a weekly well they still do it's called All Request Friday they have a request show every Friday uh, but they used to have four very very new radio people who would come in and answer the phones for two and a half hours yeah and it would be very upbeat they would fill you with sweets and you'd be going uh, taking calls and it's you know, people who want to have a song on the radio. And I did that every Friday. Eventually, they needed someone to answer the phones for the Jeremy Vine show. And I said, yeah, of course. And I already know Tim John, so I've got my foot in the door already. Mm-hmm. And then they kept inviting me back. And then I gradually worked my way up the ladder to start doing more production stuff. And then sort of eventually became a sort of a solid member of the team. And that was all freelance. And I, and I carried on as a sort of a freelance, eventually freelance basically freelance assistant producer full-time on the show and they've just given me a contract as an assistant producer so it's been a long process from me being 16 and deciding I want to work in radio but actually and I'm nearly I'm just about to turn 25 so that gives you context for time yeah it's I think my advice would be well that's my my journey in inverted commas Mm -hmm. but I think my advice would be always say yes if someone offers you an opportunity and use the networks that you've got to your advantage and i think it's very easy to say well i haven't got any networks and you think well that's not true because if you're doing student radio 
you can use that and you can go to any student if you're the only person from your uni that goes to student radio conference you'll meet people there and talk to people there and get to know people and actually it, it goes back to what i was saying but network with the people at your level and you'll you'll go far brilliant that's great advice Patrick, finally, we, we always ask our guests this last question. What are you listening to at the moment? Are, you know, are there any presenters or, or is there a radio station or, or are there programmed podcasts that have got your ear at the moment? What are you listening to? In terms of radio, I listen predominantly to Radio 1 and 2, BBC, um, just because that's sort of where I'm at. Uh, but with podcasts, I'm obsessed with podcasts. My my friends always are like, why are you just constantly listening to new podcasts? In terms of radio production and listening to, you shouldn't just listen to stuff because you think, I want to know how that's made. But there's a great one from, I think, Australia or New Zealand called Escape This Podcast, where it's like an escape room slash choose your own adventure, but in podcast form. And it's incredibly well produced. And basically the guest has to find clues within the story that they're being told to get their way out of the podcast wow and it's called escape did i say it's called escape this podcast and then they have another podcast called podcast this escape where they then dissect the the escape podcast that they've just done complicated but i would definitely recommend that the other thing i'd recommend because my friend billy would kill me if i didn't is i have my own radio show on islington radio um which you can find online called billy d paddy t and i am the paddy t and we also have a podcast as part of that called 20 minutes or so where we have 20 minute conversations with people um including uh, josh denzel from love island and charlie hedges from radio one and loads and loads of people that i've forgotten kate botley the vicar so um you should go and listen to that but so that's what i listen to is myself <laughs> <laughs> Patrick Thomas there from Radio 2's Jeremy Vine show. He gave us a lot to think about, but here are a few highlights from me. Firstly, I loved hearing about the basic clock of every Jeremy Vine programme, divided into four 30-minute sections. As a listener, it makes sense for this programme on this radio station, and it allows plenty of room for music and calls from listeners. Certainly, other magazine programmes will have different structures, But more often than not, a radio programme will start as a running order with gaps to fill. It was really interesting to hear from Patrick how they choose that content. Jeremy Vine is on air from 12 until 2pm on weekdays, so it was interesting to hear how they make decisions at 10 past 8 in the morning about that day's programme. It means that news from the day can be factored into the decision making, which is important for keeping those items and features topical and relevant for the Radio 2 audience. Patrick talked about there being around a thousand listeners contacting the show every day. That's a lot of messages. But yet, we know there are millions more who would never send a message to the programme. I guess it's important to consider that there are always people listening and that they won't always share their opinion. On the same subject, many of Jeremy's listeners will be people that are just loyal to Radio 2, keeping the station on all day every day. As a result, the team has to provide familiar, reliable content that those listeners are likely to enjoy with a range of tone on their items and a mix of Radio 2-friendly music. You're not likely to hear the latest Afrobeats or grime on this programme. Finally, the subject of experts versus correspondence was interesting. Of course, a BBC correspondent is also an expert of sorts, but the main thing to consider when preparing an item for radio is how you're going to explain things to listeners and who will help you illustrate points. When I ask students to create packages, I tell them to include someone else's expertise. I say that's a must. It adds value and, frankly, another voice will usually make the feature sound better too. You can hear the Jeremy Vine programme on Radio 2 every weekday at 12pm. And you can follow Patrick on Twitter at ThePatrickT. I'm going to briefly talk about something I've enjoyed listening to recently. Who Killed C.J. Davis was produced by The Times and is hosted by John Simpson, The Times crime correspondent. It's a close-to-home true crime story about the active murder case of 14-year-old C.J. Davis from Newham, East London. John Simpson does a superb job breaking down the story into bite-sized chunks, but what the series does really well is make the listener ask those wider social questions, making you think about how something so horrible 
has happened. It was a winner at the British Podcast Awards 2021, and deservedly so. You can find Who Killed CJ Davis on the reporter feed from The Times on your favourite podcast app. On the subject of the British Podcast Awards, hello to JR and thanks for your message, highlighting the award win for Maddie Moat and her Sound Explorers podcast. We spoke with Maddie about the project in an episode last year before she won a British Podcast Award. It's a great production and a well-deserved winner. Last year we also spoke with the British Podcast Award winner Dan Maudsley about the making of his true crime series Paradise. Do listen to those episodes if you haven't already. Thanks also to Jack for getting in touch, suggesting that as an award-winning podcaster my eight-year-old daughter Primrose could be invited onto Fantastic Noise to share her expertise. While stranger things have happened, that isn't yet in the pipeline, but you can hear plenty of Prim and even more of me by subscribing to Primrose and Terry in the Shed on your favourite podcast app. If you would like to contact us here at Fantastic Noise, be it with audio you recommend, stories, suggestions for future podcasts, feedback or something else, find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at A Fantastic Noise. You can also email us on fantasticnoise at beds ac.uk Before we go it's time for the radio word of the week Today it is DAW D-A-W DAW stands for Digital Audio Workstation That sounds complicated but it's not really especially if you're a radio or podcast practitioner It simply means whatever audio editing software you're using to record and mix your podcast or package For me, it is Adobe Audition, but it could be Audacity, or Reaper, or Hindenburg, or Goldwave, or one of many others. If you hear someone refer to a door in this context, it's not something you can slam shut, it's the editing software. Door is our radio word of the week, that's D-A-W. That is it for this episode of Fantastic Noise. Thank you so much for joining us. There will be another episode next week. Do subscribe, give us a review and a rating, and follow us on social media at A Fantastic Noise for future updates and previews. Thanks again to our guest today, Patrick Thomas, who works on The Jeremy Vine Show for BBC Radio 2. Our artwork was produced by Stu Elvin, that's Stu with a double O, and our theme music is by Liam Ayton, remixed by Daniel Potter. This podcast was produced by me for the University of Bedfordshire's radio team, part of the School of Culture and Communications, and recorded in the studios of Radiolab 97.1 FM. I'm Terry Lee, and this, I hope you'll agree, has been a fantastic noise. Fantastic noise.